Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR 88.5 FM and around the world at CJSR.com. My name is Marco Visconti and I will be your host for this evening. On the first half of this week's show, women take center stage. Christine Sokemo Frederick is one of the most active women in the arts scene in Edmonton. Among the many roles she fulfills, Christine Frederick is the executive director of the Dream Speakers Film Festival and the artistic director of the Rubabu Festival. Now she will be instrumental in opening an exciting opportunity for Indigenous artists in the cultural heart of the city. Fellow Adamant Ever Marie Fontaine met with Christine Sokemo Frederick in her office at the Dream Speakers Festival Society to chat about becoming the Citadel Theatre's first Indigenous associate artist. Let's take a listen. going through a transformation for several years. I think a lot of of our cornerstone organizations, arts organizations, have felt that momentum. And I'm really excited and very pleased to announce that the Citadel Theatre, one of Alberta's most prestigious theatre companies, has, I guess in one way of saying it, busted open a door uh, by making the very first appointment for an Indigenous associate artist. So who was the person who decided to bust that door down? The brand new uh, artistic director, Daryl Cloran. He's, uh, he came off of doing artistic directorship at, in Kamloops and working with Indigenous artists while he was there. This gentleman, Daryl Cloran, has such an incredible philosophy and I'm really excited by the things that he's bringing into the Citadel uh, in the meetings that I've had with him so far and really realizing that a lot of both his philosophies and what he's bringing in and my philosophies are really in alignment. They're, they're quite kismet, so I'm really excited. Tell us about your background as an artist. My grandmother, Christine Daniels, uh, was a leader in bringing Indigenous culture into the city in an urban context. And she had started um, the White Buffalo, sorry, no, in the 70s, it was the White Braid Society. And it was the, one of the first times that uh, Aboriginal youth had an opportunity to explore their culture through powwow, uh, through drum, drumming, dancing, singing, regalia making, beading, and all of the teachings were infused with cultural aspects and tenets of our culture. Um, and so I started off as a power dancer when I was very young. And one of the things that she always stro- strove for was opportunities for young Aboriginal people to represent their culture. So we had many opportunities, you know, on Canada Day and on special arrival of dignitaries and things like that, where we would be called out by the city to, to, to dance <laughs> and to welcome people to our territory. So I spent my childhood dancing at Fort Edmonton Park and um, every summer, always there. But also, you know, White Braid danced for the Queen when she was here and things like that. And then um, because I enjoyed it and had that sort of idea of presence um, in performance, I started getting involved in film and television as a child performer as well. 
So I was in a couple of uh, commercials and TV things and movies, some feature films. At the time, my mother was a, was a television producer. And then when I went into high school, just fell in love with theater. Absolutely fell in love with theater. I, I often say Shakespeare saved my education. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, while I was at, at uh, Victoria School here in Edmonton, a fine and performing arts high school, we started, myself and my little friends, my gang of friends, we started the Shakespeare Club. Mm. And uh, and the Shakespeare Festival, and it, by the time we graduated, it was an all all school, all departments, large festival uh, with a great big feast at the end. And I think at the time the principal was really keen on that, and that kind of got both myself and some of you know the the people that I hung around with into the idea of uh, starting a theatre company when we finished high school. So we did have a, a Shakespearean theatre company called Sound and Fury Theatre and uh, both acted uh, in, in plays but also served on the board of directors and as the president for a while. And always, always um, looking to expand into more film roles, more TV roles. Uh, got an agent when I was 18 and, and did those things. Um, but I also uh, when I was a little bit later after university, I had the opportunity to work in my culture again. My grandmother had come back from BC and she had asked to, she'd been asked by all of those youth from the 70s who are now adults and having kids of their own, she was asked to start up another powwow troupe, uh, which she did called White Buffalo Society. Um, and I actually quit my job so that I could spend more time working within my culture and working with her. And it was such an incredible time uh, being a program coordinator there and bringing powwow drummers uh, and dancers around the world to perform but, and also to represent both Canada but also Indigenous culture here on this, on this Turtle Island. Um, so I brought a troupe to Korea in 2004 and it was incredible. It was an international folklore festival. It was a really fantastic opportunity, not only for myself, but for the youth that I brought and, and some of the more uh, senior uh, dancers and drummers as well. And then it was 2009, Workshop West Playwrights Theatre started uh, a new festival called Rubaboo. And they put a call out. Uh, I think the the former AD there, Michael Clark, he realized that he had a privilege, had had the infrastructure of an organization that could apply for grants, and he knew that there wasn't a lot going on for Indigenous performers in Edmonton at that time. So he he applied for the funds. He started the festival, but he brought on a whole bunch of Indigenous coordinators uh, and performing artists to coordinate the festival and that first one it was called the Rubaboo Arts Festival and it was um, it was just like a two-night affair with some readings of plays intermixed with a couple of um, musical performances and uh, then he was really clear he wanted indigenous people to take it over and so myself and uh, Ryan Cunningham, we partnered and we started Alberta Aboriginal Performing Arts Association and we took over the Rubaboo Festival. And that very first year we we expanded it to four days and we included um, other, other disciplines of art. Uh, we also immediately partnered with the Dream Speakers Film Festival Society, which was at the time fantastic because we had access to all these performers and entertainers, uh, but we didn't have any venues 
uh, whereas Dream Speakers was, was producing their festival, they had venues but no performers. So it worked out really well to, to initiate that kind of a partnership and I'm really excited and proud that these many years later we have a formal partnership agreement uh, for the next two years to work together um, and do as much as we can for both the Indigenous arts community here in Edmonton and in Alberta, but also, you know, the, the overall arts community. I think we have a lot to offer um, this whole community within Edmonton and within Alberta and one of the things that we've been working on too is really nurturing the international relationships we have with other Indigenous groups and with other artists across Canada. You know I, I was talking to a friend of mine because of this recent appointment and and more media attention and she looked at, um, there's a video online of uh, Red Talk that I gave, it's like TED Talk but mm. it's an Indigenous so okay. Red Talk. Red Talk. Um, and I talked about my journey through art. I guess back in 2011 I was um, quoted in a newspaper of talking about art and I said you know it's really incredible that we have people like our ancestors, uh, members of my own family who really pushed the political needs for Indigenous people so that we could leave the reserve, we could gain the right to vote, we could gain the right to earn more money than 25 cents um, and reduce and in some ways eradicate the criminality of our culture, which is a lot of people are not aware that it was in fact, our culture was criminalized in this country. And so I, I've learned a lot from working with people, I've learned a lot from exploring uh, both locally and internationally what Indigenous culture means. And I made the mistake once of saying that I was, I had the luxury of being an artist because of those people who fought for our rights. When I came back from a trip uh, to Costa Rica where I was learning about Indigenous rights and I read that article, I was ashamed of myself. I realized it, I mean, it's not, not that I had drastically disconnected from community, but I think I didn't understand at that point really what art was. I had had an appreciation of it, but when I went to Costa Rica, when I learned about um, what it's like to not be identified as, an, as a native person, as an indigenous person, when I was over there people thought I was white. Hmm. I've never had that experience um, and so it was very awkward for me and sad even, but the moment I picked up a rattle and started singing an Indigenous song, the local Indigenous people immediately saw me as an Indigenous person. And that was the moment of relation. Right. And it ended up being one of my most favorite days of my entire life to be recognized, to, wow. to have, have other people see me as someone that they could relate to. They understand, they had questions about, you know what's what was the song I was singing? What did it mean? What are my what is my indigenous language? They wanted to know about my background, um, and it was just so wonderful. It opened the door. Mm. So art has that capacity to not only allow us to have an identity when when maybe our skin doesn't show it, uh, when our own personal histories aren't there. You know, a part of the local history. When you're out there in the world, how powerful it is to have someone recognize that you, you're their sister. But also to see that as something to strive for as mm -hmm. opposed to hide away from. Exactly, immediately valuable, valuable. Uh, and, and beyond that, you know, I realized that when I came back that art was not a luxury. <laughs> and it's not a privilege, it's a responsibility. 
because if I hadn't learned that song, if I hadn't known something about my Indigenous culture, I would have been invisible to them. And I would have been invisible to myself. Welcome back to Adam and Eve on CJSR. My name is Marco Visconti. On this week's show, we're highlighting some recent accomplishments of women in the arts here in the Edmonton area. We just finished listening to an interview produced by Adam and Eve reporter Marie Fontaine with Christine Sakemo Frederick, who was recently named the Citadel Theatre's first Indigenous associate artist, and she will be working as a liaison between the Citadel and Edmonton's Indigenous community. Marie also connected with The Maggie Tree, an Edmonton-based theatre company that strives to support the development and visibility of women in creative leadership roles. The Maggie Tree is the co-creation of Vanessa Sabarin and Christy Hansen, who launched the company in 2007. Vanessa and Christy saw a need for a dynamic platform which would put more women in the limelight. Their latest production, Nine Parts of Desire, is a play written by Heather Raffo that details the lives of nine Iraqi women during the First and Second Gulf Wars. Marie Fontaine joined the multicultural cast at the Queen Alexandra School during one of their rehearsals. She spoke with Vanessa Sabarin, the director, Ainsley Hilliard, the choreographer, and a few of the members of the cast who took time during their lunch break to chat about their roles. Let's take a listen. We were looking for something sort of simple to do, haha, and uh, and it was a one-woman show, so we looked at it again, and it was just so relevant. Um, the the content was just so relevant uh, in terms of uh, all of what was happening this summer with um, ISIL and with the refugees and all of the conversation that happens with refugees, and then with um, a particular. Um, person running for president and and all of the um, divisive dialogue that we were starting to hear it just it just it just really resonated with us and also all of the issues that our our indigenous people are are trying to work through and and that continue to be an issue and really should no longer be an issue Um, I feel quite firmly about that it just it became it was just so relevant so we were like okay well let's 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 do this one but let's do it instead of a one-person show because it was like, well, who who do we cast and how does that... They have to be able to play all of these characters and, okay, so let's let's break it into three parts. Um, the playwright, uh, Heather Raffo, had said you can do this as a one-person play, you can do it as a three-person play, you could do it as a nine-person play as well if you want. So we set up um, an audition <clears throat> and we had a lot of submissions and we learned a lot about the play through the audition process. And then we decided, well, Christy was like, let's do nine. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Which meant then we were casting nine. And then we, we hired some Iraqi consultants so that we could make sure that our, our cultural understanding was much deeper and that it was an, part of this project, part of us doing this project was an opportunity to get to know another culture, to say, like, I, I want to know you, especially if you're living here with us. Like, I don't, I want to know more about you. Um, and then we hired um, an Iraqi artist, to um, dis- uh, visual artist, to display in the lobby, um, which is something we've done as the Maggie Tree, sort of tried to incorporate the lobby in terms of the whole experience of coming to the theatre. 
Um, and we hired two musicians and we have been, so it just keeps mm. growing and the more people that we involve, the more information comes into the piece and the more we see about the piece. And, and I love the show because it just keeps going, like the depth of it and the, and the importance of it and the personal intersections um, just keep revealing themselves. So it's a play, it's the, the, the play is, is about, you know, a war and women in war, but but it's actually, w when you get past that first layer, it's about survival and it's about love. I personally feel that in the world as we are living in right now, it is imperative that we love and we love now. Um, so this piece is a container for that message or that, not message, because message is always so uh, insulting to the audience sometimes, but that offer or that invitation or that question, how can we love story, but, but, but also what engages the audience is, is often a question. Mm. And it's not like I know something that, or we know something that the audience doesn't know. That's, that's not, that's not true. But I do, I have thought a lot about certain questions that this play brings up and the question of the nature of how we can love and how we can love in a world as complex as the one we are in now and how can we know each other better um, and, and how can we stop thinking about us and them and start thinking about us. So my name's Ainsley Hilliard and uh, I'm the choreographer or movement kind of designer for this project. Well, I, I come from a dance background, um, so uh, in the same ways that the director is directing how the um, actors are saying things and what their intention is, I'm doing a very similar thing with movement. So shaping the environment that they're in, um, as well as uh, embellishing uh, their intentions or their emotional feelings uh, with movement, either as a group or individually. So do you, have, you obviously have to have some sort of a vision or Definitely, or you. And how is that? How does that vision informed? Um, for me, um, it uh, uh, you know obviously in reading of the script, um, but uh, for my practice, um, I really like to you know obviously have some ideas and uh, concepts uh, before I come into the room. But um, for me, it works best when my vision. Uh, is based on who is in the room. I always like to go with what's uh, available to me in the room in terms of the people that I'm working with um, and the, their characteristics and personalities um, actually become a huge inspiration mm. for uh, the type of movement work uh, that I do uh, and using them as kind of like a catalyst for, um, for our movement exploration. My name is Alison Wells. I've been working professionally in the theatre for 50 years. I basically am semi-retired but when my friend Vanessa called me, because it was her, because I respect her, and because I've always respected the Maggie Tree, I read the script and I thought, ooh, ooh, kind of heavy for an old lady. But I thought, I think it's an important play, and I think I would really regret it if I didn't do it. And I said, as long as I don't have to learn too many words, I'll come. So here I am. <laughs> I'm Nicole St. Martin, and I got involved because I applied to the Maggie Tree Productions. I'm fairly new to Edmonton, and I'd heard great things about these two, mm -hmm. these two being Vanessa and Christy. Wow, this interesting choice of play, and especially given what's going on in the world right now. So I thought I'd audition, and uh, I went in, auditioned, and I had a good chat with 
the two of them and felt like it was going to be approached with a great deal of integrity and I loved how Vanessa was playing with me in the audition. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm at that stage right now where I'm just enjoying this incredible bunch of people that I get to work with. I feel really privileged to be able to work with these people. Uh, my name's Nimet Kanji and I play Amal in the show. And she's a very interesting character. She's the one that talks the least about the war. She, I think it's also how people sometimes adapt to their situation in the world that they live in. I actually was born and raised in Nairobi, and I remember growing up with um, racism, fear, um, so I can sort of um, bring some of that into Amal um, um, in terms of um, unrest in a country. Uh, she's, she's very spirited, though, very, very um, independent. And um, for her, it's about these relationships where she's trying to find peace for her heart and yet really wanting the freedom of the West. My name is Amina Shihab. Um, I came to Canada in the beginning of 2013 uh, from Syria. I come not direct from Syria, from Qatar, but I'm Syrian. And when the war started, I came here. And uh, I'm playing Lael. Lael, she's one of the main characters. Lael is, uh, is not a typical woman, but she's a woman in the war, which we are seeing. Since you are a woman and you live the war, there is no west or east or north or south. You suffer, you hurt, and Lael is, she's, she's strong, she's a dreamer. She loves everyone, she loves every woman. She always said, it's not just me, it's all of us. That was an interview with the cast and crew behind the Maggie Tree's upcoming production of Nine Parts of Desire, a play about nine Iraqi women surviving during the First and Second Gulf Wars. The production starts on April 6th at the Varscona Theatre. To learn more about the play, visit themaggietree.com. My name is Marco Visconti, and you are tuned into Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR. A few days ago, a women's studies course being offered at a rural elementary school in the town of Clyde, Alberta, came to light. Now, while women's studies at a university level generally involves critically analyzing the social, political, and economic treatment of women in society and throughout time, and attempting to dissolve gender essentialist notions such as fixed gender roles, this women's studies was a little bit different. It was discovered that the version of women's studies being taught at Eleanor Hall School in Clyde, Alberta, actually was about hairstyles, dinner parties, recipes, and interior decor. In a description of the course on the Pembina Hills Public Schools website, it says the outcomes of the course are to teach girls how to, and I quote, analyze the shape of their faces to determine which hairstyle is most flattering, assess their body shape to choose clothing styles that are the most complimentary, and to complete an online shopping activity to identify their own personal style. While representatives from the local school board have said the course is actually about helping young girls confront harmful notions that they are bombarded with in the media, others see this course as an outdated and oppressive approach to girls' education and a step back for gender equality in the province. 
I decided to get somewhat of an insider opinion on this issue. When you brought it up, you're like, did you hear about that school in Clyde that's teaching women's studies? And I was like, what? They're teaching women's studies? That's amazing. And you were like, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's my friend Rachel Carr. Rachel is a school teacher from Edson, Alberta. While she's removed from the situation in Clyde, I thought since she's a teacher in rural Alberta, she might have some insights into this topic. I didn't like that they attached it to, like, oh, we're giving them an introduction to cosmetology and aesthetics and... Um, and media studies. Food and media <laughs> studies. And I was like, no, you're not. You're teaching them how to do their hair and you're attaching it to their self-esteem and their self-worth in a way that is really detrimental to them and will be for probably a long time. Mm-hmm. And you're not even acknowledging that... I don't know, that, like, a mistake was made. Were you surprised at all? Does it surprise you when you hear these stories coming out of rural Alberta? Yeah, I was quite surprised because, um, like, when we talked about it the first time, I was like, well, maybe they don't have, like, as many or as much access to resources than cities do, city schools. But I think it's more so just kind of, I don't want to say negligence, but being kind of willfully blind to what's actually going on and not doing everything that they could be in order to inform themselves on these issues and just the concept of women's studies, like the course does not follow what modern (laughs) women's studies is at all. No, not at all. It's just like encouraging young girls that their purpose is to learn about beauty. Exactly. And then in one of the articles as well, um, I think the superintendent was quoted as saying, like, the purpose of this is to help them navigate adolescence and help them with their self-image and their self-esteem and um, to make them more self-aware. And I was really taken aback by that. I was like, teenage girls do not need to be made more (laughs) self-aware. They are probably the most self-aware demographic that we have in schools. They are so Mm. self-conscious. They are such a vulnerable population that teaching them that what they're doing isn't right because they don't feel good, so you have to change in order to look like this, or just that your self-worth is based on your appearance and your aesthetic, and that's just not accurate at all. I am more than, you know, my body. I am more than my hairstyle. And to be teaching them that that's how to make themselves feel good Mm. is so, so wrong. Like, I try to really not... I guess, encourage the underlying, I don't even know, patriarchy, I guess, which is like, I don't even think about it until I realize that I'm doing it, like choosing the boys first or choosing the boys to go and move something instead of choosing the girls. And and since I've kind of realized that last year, I've (laughs) purposely like, I need four strong girls. I need, Mm. I need four boys who are able to help, you know, with younger kids or and just kind of I don't know trying to swap those gender roles a little bit because right they're open to it Mm -hmm. but it's just a lot of the opportunity isn't there for them so that's so interesting it's so automatic too in a way because I can think of when I was in school like the teacher if there's something needed to be moved it was always like I need three strong boys to help me move this table and you just think yeah of course and then when you're older you just because that's the model of teaching you've been given exactly it just comes out of your mouth I bet yeah. 
And I just find myself, like, I'm really disappointed in myself when I do things like that. So I'm like, <laughs> I know better. I know better than that. And I need to be more direct with myself in being like, oh, never mind. Sorry, I need girls instead. Or, or just picking four volunteers and picking the first four mm. volunteers instead of necessarily classifying them as I need four boys, I need four girls, or whatever. Mm-hmm. In your experience, do you know who that de- who decides what gets taught in, in a rural classroom? Um, it really depends on the school board that you work for and how their admin operates. Um, so in my school, our admin gives us a lot of freedom. Mm. And so if I was kind of planning to do something a little more controversial or, you know, even read a book that might not be on like an approved list, I would just go and ask. And generally they're like, okay, what's your reason for doing this? And we have kind of a discussion about it. But I do know some young teachers who their admin is like, nope, you're, you can't do that. So it's kind of hard, but I would say for the most part, um, schools are, are fairly progressive that way. Yeah. So Even in rural Alberta, and <laughs> this is a very disappointing example. Welcome back to Adam and Eve on CJSR. My name is Marco Visconti. That was my friend Rachel Carr we were listening to. Rachel is a teacher from Edson, Alberta, and she was discussing the problematic new women's studies course being offered at a rural elementary school in Clyde, Alberta, that actually focuses more on giving beauty tips to young girls. And that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Adam and Eve will be back with more feminist programming in two weeks' time, so make sure to tune in again. If you'd like to follow us on social media, feel free to look up Adam and Eve on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find our past episodes on iTunes and on CJSR's SoundCloud page. Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CJSR FM 88.5, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. We produce this week's show at the CJSR Studios at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada.